Welcome to Thrive Community Podcast. We are a church community that is passionate about helping you thrive in your life with Jesus. If you're after more information about Thrive Community, hop onto our website at www.thrivecommunity.au. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired by this message. What I wanted to do was just share a couple of thoughts that I feel like God's put on my heart for the year ahead. This isn't about specifically prophesying into world events, but speaking into the condition of our heart and the journey that we go on personally in our life with with the Lord. And these are things that have been stirring in me for a, a couple of months. And I feel like God's kind of continued to clarify and add different layers to them. And I feel like... Well, I pray that there's something in it for, for all of us to be able to continue to feel stirred and encouraged in our walk with, with the Lord. And I've got a, a title for it. Again, I feel like I don't often have titles for things these days, but I felt like God gave me one for, for, for this. And the title is The Altar on the Threshing Floor. The Altar on the Threshing Floor. And that comes from, from 2 Samuel 24. And I want to spend most of our time focusing on different parts of 2 Samuel 24 and yes it's you know 24 and we're in into 2024 and so there's something perhaps about that but 2 Samuel 24 the events that are described in there are also described in 1 Chronicles 21 they kind of cover the same events and 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 circumstances and so what I want to do is just walk through 2 Samuel 24. We'll flip to some passages in 1 Chronicles 21 as well. And I believe there's, well, I'm hoping that there's a bunch of stuff in there that is going to speak to what God is doing and what God wants to do both in our individual lives, but I also believe more corporately. And as we go through this, if there's anything else that stirs in you, feel free to chime in along the way and happy to have a conversation as we go. Um, and so... I'm just going to begin by opening up 2 Samuel 24. And we'll read through the first eight or nine verses, and then we might pause there and have a bit of a conversation. Sorry? Yeah. 2 Samuel 24. And from verse 1, I'm reading from the NLT, but feel free to read along in, in whatever other translation you want. 2 Samuel 24. And it says, once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he caused David to harm them by asking or by taking a census. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. So the king said to Joab, the commander of his army, take a census of all the people in the land from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south so that I may know how many people there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God let you live until there are a hundred times as many people in your kingdom as there are now, but why do you want to do this? But the king insisted that they take the census. So Joab and his officers went out to count the people of Israel. First, they crossed the Jordan and camped at Aror, south of the town in the valley, in the direction of Gad. Then they went on to Jazer, then to Gilead in the land of Tatim Hodishi, and to Danjan and around to Sidon. Then they came to the stronghold of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went south to Judah as far as Beersheba. Having gone through the entire land, they completed their task in nine months and 20 days and then returned to Jerusalem. 
Joab reported the number of people to the king. There were 800,000 men of military age in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. And what I was drawn to in, in these few verses, first of all, I find it quite interesting that the Lord obviously had quite strong views around David's choice to take a census, right? That there was something sinful or wrongful about the census that David was asking to be taken of the people of Israel. In fact, if you flip over to 1 Chronicles 21, it says that it was the work of Satan um, that incited David to take a census of, of the people. And it seems strange, doesn't it, that literally just going and counting all the people of Israel would have such a strong response from the Lord. But as we know, you know, so often what perhaps outwardly might not seem necessarily as such an issue, the Lord looks at the heart and there can be things going on at a deeper level that he's wanting to deal with. And reading through some of the Bible commentators and their take on this passage, there's a suggestion that David was likely pressured into asking for the census as a way of trying to assess his own strength against the hostility of of neighbouring nations. There was... You know, neighboring nations around that perhaps were making noise or threatening to attack. And his way of assessing his strength against those voices or those nations was to take a census. And it was him moving away from trusting wholly in the Lord to actually beginning to trust in the strength of the nation rather than relying on God alone. There was this element of pride, perhaps mixed with fear and insecurity, relying on his own strength that led to David asking for the census to be taken. And that's what God is trying to deal with here. It's this kind of wrongful, unhealthy counting. There's a a wrongful attachment to to numbering the people. It's a counting that comes from a lack of trust in God. And of course, not all counting is wrong. There's plenty of times throughout Scripture where a census is taken and God doesn't have a reaction like that. But I believe in many cases, and we can probably reflect on our own lives too, that across the broader body of Christ, we're in a time where perhaps there is an unhealthy attachment to counting and numbers that actually has come from a lack of trust in the Lord that God is wanting to deal with at the moment as well. You know, this is both in our individual lives, but as well as corporately, that when we reflect on our own lives, how do we assess strength? What does that look like? How do we assess our own strength or the strength of others? How do we respond when we feel like there's voices that are questioning our value? When we sense others questioning our strength and our ability? You know, we spend a lot of time counting or basing our kind of perspective on others based on the number of followers, the number of likes, you know, the number of people in seats, whether in a church context the number of friends, the number of invitations to different things. There's all of these sorts of counting and numbering that takes place. And I wonder whether some of that actually comes from a place of trying to find value in something other than the Lord. You know, counting different accomplishments as a way of trying to assess our strength. And I think social social media is, is really bad for this in so many ways because it's been specifically designed to kind of take advantage of our at times weakness to numbers and counting and followers and we get sucked into to that or at least personally for me I can get sucked into that very easily and it, you begin assessing people I don't know whether others do this 
you know, you meet someone new or you find someone on social media, one of the first things you do is look at how many followers they have or those sorts of things. And somehow that is a measure of someone's value or their ability to make a contribution. And I feel like God is wanting to untangle us from some of that unhealthy attachment to counting and to, to numbers that we also do that when we're falling into the trap of comparing ourselves with others, don't we? We kind of compare based on counting of this, counting of that. We also do it sometimes when we're even just trying to measure ourselves in our own hearts, right? In the face of insecurities, fears, disappointments, we often respond by assessing our strength based on counting different things, counting different accomplishments. And I, and I feel like God is saying and reminding us that our, our value, our identity, our strength, our calling, our success that's not attached to, to numbers. That's not attached to the number of followers or any of those sorts of things. It's attached to the finished work of Jesus and coming back to that place where we trust in him and surrender to him alone. That in order for us to advance into all that God has for us this year, we need to begin untangling ourselves from any unhealthy attachment to numbers, any unhealthy attachment to, to counting, this wrongful type of counting that takes our trust away from the Lord. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, the journey that we've been on demonstrates as well in some ways that, you know, we're, we're trying to move away from having that attachment to counting as such a central place in church community as well, right? In, in different environments, so much of our focus is on numbers and counting things. And I'm not sure that that is always necessarily from a pure motive of trusting in the Lord. It's actually sometimes insecurity and wanting to establish ourselves through being able to speak about numbers rather than just trusting in what God wants to do and coming back to that place where there's a simple and a pure trust in him. And so David has this moment where, you know, he asks for the census even though um, Joab challenges him and says that might not be the best idea. He insists that they go and do it. And then David has uh, a realization of perhaps the, the choice that he's made is not what God wanted him to do. And if we pick it up in, in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 10, it says, but after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly and shouldn't have taken the census. Please forgive me, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. And then the next morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer. This was the message. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments or these consequences, and I will do it. So Gad came to David and asked him, will you choose three years of famine throughout the land? Three months of fleeing from your enemies or three days of severe plague throughout your land? Think this over and let me know what answer to give the Lord. This is a desperate situation, David replied to Gad, but let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into the human hands. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning and it lasted for three days. 70,000 people died throughout the nation. Again, it seems like pretty severe consequences as well for the action of David in taking a census. But I want to focus on, first of all, David's response, that there was, there was a genuine repentance and coming back to the Lord and saying sorry for the choice that he had made. And we've talked about this a bunch of times over the last 12, 18 months, but I think there's, there's something important about bringing repentance back into its 
kind of the centrality of our life with the Lord. That perhaps it doesn't get as much emphasis as it should um, in different spaces, but being people of repentance who allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and then genuinely repent and work through those things with the Lord is such a fundamental part of being true disciples of, the, of, of Jesus and being mature followers of the Lord. And so, you know, coming back to that place of humility and conviction and repentance is what enables us to live life of freedom and live in the fullness of all that, that God has for us. And so I want to encourage us to continue to be people who go after that in allowing and inviting Holy Spirit to search our hearts and then also, you know, taking the time to repent of things that are brought up and allow God to deal with what he needs to, to deal with. And in David's moment of repentance, in facing up to, to the consequences of his choices, he was given three different options. Right? The prophet Gad said there's either three years of famine or different translations. Apparently the, the Greek word is translated as three years, but the Hebrew word is translated as seven. So some translations say seven and some translations say three. Three or seven years of famine, three months of fleeing from enemies or three days of a plague. And as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about the fact that in some ways these three can also represent the three choices that, or the three paths that we can choose to take when we're faced with dealing with some of our own issues. You know, sometimes we choose the path of a long period of fruitfulness and famine because we don't want to actually deal with the things that are there. We choose to go on this long journey of avoiding whatever it is that, that might be there. And as a result, we have long periods of famine in our spiritual lives because we're not actually dealing with the consequences or dealing with the issue that's in front of us. Other times we do run away and flee from our place of destiny in the same way that one of the options was for David to flee from the land for three months. I don't know whether that's kind of emotionally or physically, we at times run away from the things that we're confronted with. But the third option, and this is the option that, that David chose, is you know, allowing God to, to bring death to different parts of our lives. And David, who was a man after God's own heart, he chose the three days of plague because he didn't want to fall into the hands of men. He wanted to fall into the hands of the Lord for the Lord's mercy is great. And so David chose to allow God to bring death into Israel. And I believe a part of him knew that as difficult and as painful as that was going to be, there is always great mercy in the difficult, painful things that the Lord allows. And I wonder whether perhaps... You know, there's, there's an element of that for us to take on board as well, that, you know, maybe we're dealing with some things and, and standing in a place where we're faced with similar choices. You know, are we going to turn to human hands and spend time in spiritual famine, running away from the things that God wants us to deal with? Or are we going to choose God's way of, of dealing with things and allow him to kill the things off that he needs to kill off? allow him to prune and cut things off in our lives as painful as that might be. And, you know, my sense is, and I'm sure we all have got our own views and, you know, as nice as it is at times to feel like you want to kind of be all optimistic and kind of all of this amazing stuff is going to happen in the year ahead, I feel like there still might be a season of working through some difficult stuff. Right, you know, many of us had last year where we were dealing with things, and and I feel like there could be some more 
throughout 2024 as well, where God's still dealing with some of those old mindsets and having to cut some things off. He's still wanting to kill the the lies that are trying to uh, attack us and deal with different areas of our lives. There's old attitudes that still need to be struck down. And so as we move into 2024, I think there still are things perhaps in our lives that, that need to be dealt with. And at least for me, I feel like that's the case. You know, I'm not sure that kind of finding rest for your soul journey and having things dug up that we just leave that behind in 2023 and it's all kind of easy cruising and, and, and happy sailing from here. There is still stuff that needs to be dealt with um, and, and that's, that's ongoing. And so, you know, perhaps there's things where we have an opportunity to think about how we're going to respond and, and, and the choice that we're going to make. Because when we think about the issues that we're facing, how we're responding to to those that that God has brought up. What choices are we going to make this year in confronting some of the things that have been holding us back? Are we going to go down that long period of just ignoring it and ending up in in spiritual famine? Are we going to choose to to run away? Or are we going to trust in the mercy of God that if he wants to kill some things and strike some things down and take some things away, then we trust that that actually is for our good. And what needs to happen in order for us to find the freedom to be able to move forward into our destiny and our purpose. And so I want to encourage us to to humble ourselves under the hand of God and embrace the pruning that he wants to do. If there's pruning that he wants to engage with, things to cut off, things to strike down, trusting that what he chooses to remove, he knows what's best for us. And I actually think that that picture, you know, those three choices and David choosing the, the, the plague and allowing God and the hand of God to do what, God wanted to do knowing that his mercy was there is also a, in some ways a powerful picture of what true discipleship with the Lord looks like yeah. right it's this idea of are we willing to lose our life for his sake are we really willing to take up our cross are we willing to count the cost and pay the price um, and, and humbling ourselves under the hand of God and trusting him to do what he wants to do I mean you sharing just before Alison right like are we willing to give up those things and make the changes for, for more room or are we going to run away? Or are we going to just ignore them and continue on in that place of famine or the, the fruitlessness? And so David makes that choice. And as painful as it would have been, um, he ends up moving forward. And if we pick it up again in 2 Samuel 24 from verse 16. And it says... But as the death angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the angel, stop, that is enough. And hopefully we get to a place in some ways this year, maybe where the Lord's like, stop, that's enough. You've dealt with your stuff. You've dealt with your mess. (laughs) At that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And when David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these people are innocent. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. And I mean, even in those couple of verses, you see the mercy of God, right? That the Lord looked down and told the angel to relent before all of Jerusalem was destroyed. And that day, Gad, remember Gad was the prophet, came to David and said to him, go and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went to do what the Lord had commanded him. And when Aruna saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came forward and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord? Aruna asked. And David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor 
and to build an altar to the Lord there so that the Lord will stop the plague. Take it, my Lord, and use it as you wish, Aruna said to David. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and you can use the threshing tools and ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I will give it all to you and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. And here is 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. And obviously we're in 2024. And it says, but the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on buying it for I cannot present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him 50 pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. And David built an altar there to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer and the plague was stopped. And interestingly, 2 Samuel 24, 24, the same passage, you know, that describes those events in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 24 is exactly the same. Verse 24 of 1 Chronicles 21. And it says, but the king replied to Aaron, no, I insist on paying what it is worth. I cannot take what is yours and give it to the Lord. I will not offer a burnt offering that has cost me nothing. That's the same verse 24 in both passages is about actually understanding that there's a sacrifice and there's, you know, there needs to be a willingness to count the cost and pay the price if we're going to be people who truly follow the Lord and live a life for him. And so the angel relents at that threshing floor. David goes up and, and ends up building an altar there. And I want to begin by just saying, you know, my senses, and, and I have seen others share similar thoughts around the place as well, more broadly across the body of Christ, that it feels like we're in a, a threshing floor moment. If you know what a threshing floor is, they're obviously not used these days. Farming is slightly different and, and kind of progressed a little bit over the last, you know, however many hundreds of years. But the threshing floor was the place where, where the grain was separated from the straw, where the, the, the grain was separated from the, from the chaff. So the, the seed, the grain that was actually used was separated from the, from the chaff that really had no purpose and, and didn't serve any, any value. And they used to separate that. There was shaking, there was crushing, there was pressure. They used to blow wind through that. There was this kind of activity and shaking that happened to produce a separation. The purpose of the threshing floor was to, to separate the useful from the redundant, the grain from the chaff. It was to separate that which provides nourishment from that which has no substance. It was to separate that which has a deeper purpose from that which has no deeper value. And it feels like in some ways there's a threshing going on you know, across the world, but also in parts of the body of Christ at the moment where really, you know, we might have felt it in our own lives too, that, that there's a time coming and we're in a season where we need to make choices on kind of choosing to either follow the path that God has for us um, or kind of find ourselves in a position where really there, there isn't the value and the depth and the purpose that, that God wants. And, you know, if you want to take that analogy even further, there's plenty of examples in scripture where the chaff just gets burnt up. Right? And, it's, and it's kind of in that season of separation where God is pulling things apart. And I feel like the kind of token legalistic, you know, just tick the box on a Sunday is, isn't going to cut it anymore. And where those that truly are going to have to, to pay the price and go through the crushing and the pressing and the pressure to be separated and set apart for what the Lord wants to do. And so I believe it's time to embrace our own personal threshing floors. And, you know, we've probably talked about this. Some of us have feel like we're in the middle of a threshing floor for a whole bunch of different reasons. But also I think it's time to engage with 
you know, the broader corporate threshing floor that's happening across the body of Christ as well. And that's the journey that we've all been on as well over the last 12 months is we believe that there's kind of God is doing something different and we're engaging with that kind of transition that God is, is bringing upon us. And David insists on buying the threshing floor for full price. He doesn't want to bring a burnt offering that costs him, him nothing. He's willing to count the cost. And I guess, you know, we started by talking about the unhealthy, wrongful type of counting. Counting the cost when it comes to our life for Jesus is, is the right kind of counting. David counts the cost, he pays the price. And, you know, if we want to live lives of, of true devotion, separated from the chaff of the world, separated from the chaff of our flesh, then, you know, the lusts of the flesh... There's, there's a cost and there's a price that, that needs to be paid for us to live those kind of lives. And I actually think that this is one of the major separations that's happening at the threshing floor at the moment. You know, there's a separation between costless Christianity on one side and costly devotion to Jesus on the other, where it's either we're, we're either choosing to properly give our lives to the Lord and follow after him, and the, the days of kind of playing games over here are coming to an end. So we're either costless Christianity that really isn't going to produce the fruit and isn't going to last or we are willing to pay the price and go down the path of that costly devotion of truly giving ourselves to the Lord and we all need to, to, to make that choice whether we're willing to pay the price just as David made a choice and insisted on paying full price for the, the threshing floor where we count the cost for what it means to, to have a pure heart before the Lord and you know, the reality is I feel like the price of living for Jesus is just getting higher and higher in the, in the world today, right? It's getting more and more expensive and it's getting harder and harder to stand up with integrity for the truth of the Word of God. The, the cost and the price is getting more and more expensive. And my prayer is that for all of us, we would be those that this year are able to make choices to move away from costless Christianity and actually be willing at times to, to pay the price and count the cost, whether that's at home with our families, whether that's at work, wherever that might be in different circumstances and situations that come up, but be willing to, to count the cost and pay the price to live a life of devotion to Jesus. And I've kind of just written a couple of, of thoughts down around what that transition can look like in different areas of our lives. And, you know, thinking about things like we move away from costless fear of man to costly fear of the Lord move from costless religion to costly spirit-empowered obedience, that costless fear of rejection to costly radical love, costless selfishness to costly selflessness, costless performance to costly purity, costless judgment to costly forgiveness, costless excuses to costly perseverance and beginning to pay the price for truly living a life that is devoted to Jesus. And, you know, on that place, in that threshing floor, it's David who says that he doesn't want to bring an offering that costs him nothing. But the other thing that's captured in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 24, he says, not only I insist on buying it for the full price, but I will not take what is yours and give it to the Lord. And I find that thought really kind of fascinating and it's grabbed me that perhaps there's something about you know trying to identify areas of our lives or others that are 
kind of more on that costless Christianity side of things, it's often the what can I take from you type perspective, right, that, that demonstrates that costless Christianity because it's all about what I can take, not the price that I'm willing to pay, but what can I take from you? And David says that I will not take what is yours and give it to the Lord. And I feel like God is wanting to, you know, deal with some of that and move us away from that what can I take perspective and instead, the heart of David was not what can I take from you, but looking at the posture of his heart and asking, what am I offering to the Lord here? And beginning to shift our perspective because, you know, the reality is we've probably all done it and I've certainly done it. You, you fall into the trap of, you know, coming into relationships or different spaces and it's about what can people give me or what can, what can I take from this situation or circumstance rather than looking at the, the deeper inward posture of a heart and going, what can I offer the Lord here? And so it was David who insisted on paying full price. And perhaps it's worth reflecting on our own relationships where different parts of our own lives are. Because I do feel like we're standing on a threshing floor. We're in the middle of the shaking and there's a separation that's happening. And God is asking us whether we'll pay the price and count the cost to, to be people of devotion and, and obedience. And the way that we respond to that invitation, if we want to follow that path of costly devotion... I believe our response is the same as David's in 2 Samuel 24. Our response is to build an altar. Our response is, is to build an altar. David builds an altar on the threshing floor. And this is kind of the last thought I want to share before we, before we wrap up, is that David builds an altar on the land that he paid the price to purchase. Right? He insists on paying full price. David builds an altar in the middle of the place where the shaking and the crushing and the threshing was taking place. And I think sometimes we feel like maybe we want to wait until the shaking is over before we properly set up an altar of, of worship and prayer and sacrifice. We want things to look a little bit easier, the path to be a little bit smoother before we truly give ourselves over to establishing what God wants us to build. But I sense God saying that it's time to build an altar on the threshing floor in the midst of the shaking, in the midst of the whatever else that's going on, that, that the very place where we pay the price is also the place where God has given us authority to build an altar. You know, it's the place where we count the cost. It's the place where we pay the price. That's the place where God wants us to, to build altars. And as I was thinking about that, you know, people might, in you know, old wineskin perhaps perspective, you feel like building altars looks like doing something on a Sunday morning. You know, but, but the real cost of obedience is very rarely paid on a Sunday morning. Right, the real cost of obedience is paid at home in your family. The real cost of obedience is paid in your marriage. It's paid how you navigate different family dynamics. It's paid in your parenting, the choices that you make in those spaces. It's not paid through you know, lifting your hands for 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's paid through the choices that we make in our daily lives. It's paid in how we navigate friendships and different relational dynamics. That's where the real cost of obedience comes in. And so I believe it's those places that God is wanting us to build our altars. You know, that we're coming into a time where <coughs> it's important to be building altars in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships, in the secret places where no one else is watching. That that's the place where 
God is asking us to build altars more than you know in an auditorium on a Sunday morning. It's in homes, it's in families, it's in our relationships. In the secret place of our homes and our circumstances. And so altars, we've talked about this at different times and I know I've shared um, around altars probably 18 plus months ago, but, but altars are places of prayer and worship and sacrifice unto the Lord. And so we, we establish a place, we, we build a fire in prayer and worship and then we bring ourselves, our families, our cities, our circumstances as an offering before the Lord. And, and that's what David does. David builds an altar to the Lord, 2 Samuel 24, 25. David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And one of the things that I want to just pull out, it says, you know, that he sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. He, he obviously lit a fire and built a fire on the altar to be able to, to, to bring those offerings and those sacrifices. And just a couple of verses before that, it says, you know, Aruna offers the threshing boards and the ox yokes as wood for the fire on the altar. And I wonder whether perhaps some of our journey of freedom, you know, God is saying that some of the, the yokes that have held us in bondage in the past are actually going to be fuel for the new fire that God wants to burn in and through our lives. That some of the things that have been keeping us bound in the past, some of the things that produced the pain or the the shaking, those things actually are going to be fuel for the new fire of God that he wants to burn in and through our lives. And, you know, this idea of building an altar, bringing offerings and sacrifices and, and praying for the land so that the plague might be stopped. You know, I was struck that that almost is a, and a powerful picture of what the whole commission of the Christian life is about, right? It's about building an altar in our own lives and praying for the land, whether that's the land of our hearts, the land of our family, the land of our cities, so that we can see the plague of sin and death stopped. That's ultimately the great commission, right? Is, is to, to live a life where... We pray, we bring offerings, we bring sacrifices so that the plague of sin and death might be stopped. That's what kingdom living looks like. And yes, it starts with the land in our own hearts, wanting to see the plague of sin and death stopped in terms of what it's been doing and, and, and the, the havoc it's been wreaking in our own hearts. But then it moves from the inside out and it's stopping the plague in our families, in our broader community, in our regions, in our city praying for the land of our neighborhood. And, and that, that phrase, the Lord answered his prayer for the land, is really kind of stirred within me. And I feel like there's something about this season, and we've talked a little bit about this before, and you know, this, I felt like, was, was encouragement and confirmation in some ways that we're coming into a time where it's important to you know, gather together and spend time praying for the land. You know, it's, it's probably time to actually stand up and be praying for our cities, praying for our regions, because, you know, so much of the stuff that's happening is destroying the next generation, destroying lives and beginning to build altars in prayer and worship where we stand in the gap for our land, stand in the gap for, you know, the, the cities and the regions that, that we're a part of. Let's begin praying for Melbourne um, and begin praying for God to, to do something in this city. And that as we do that, I'm believing that in the same way that God answered the prayers for the land of Israel, 
for David, that he would also answer the prayers for Melbourne and we would see the plague of sin and death stopped and the other plagues that are manifesting and destroying lives across the city. And to bring this together, you know, when we do that, when we're building altars and praying for the land, it's not just about us, right? It's, it's honouring generations that have gone before us, the prayers and the legacy that they have left, but also it's preparing the way for the generations that are to come. And that's exactly what the threshing floor of Aruna is. I don't know whether um, other people might already know this, but, but that place was the exact same place where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac. That's the generations that have been before. But also, in exactly that same place, David's son built the temple. In exactly that same place. There was this link between the generations that have been before and the generations that are to come. 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1. It tells us Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the site that David had selected. And so there was something about the altar and the prayers that David prayed there that established that place as the place where the temple was going to be built. And so as we give ourselves to untangling our lives from wrongful counting and letting go of just trusting in the things of this world, coming back to trusting God as our strength, as we say, yes, Lord, we're willing to count the cost and pay the price to move away from costless Christianity into true devotion to Him. And we begin to build altars on the threshing floors of our lives, in our homes, in our families, and pray for the healing of the land. We're preparing the ground and preparing the way for God to rebuild a temple. Where I'm believing in the words of Haggai, the glory will be greater than the former. Where peace and prosperity will abide. You know, that this would be a year where we really see altars established in the midst of the the shaking of the threshing floor that we find ourselves in.